You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. I got something I want to talk about to you. Hello and welcome to Communication Mixdown on 3CR, broadcasting from the land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations. I'm Judith Peppard and it's great to have you with us this evening. Murdoch and mushrooms, that's what we're covering on tonight's show. But what do they have in common? The Murdoch I'm referring to, of course, is the Rupert of corporate media fame. And mushrooms, well, they could be any old variety, even the kind you buy in the supermarket. The common denominator, they're both involved in using various forms of communication. And in this edition of Communication Mixdown, we're going to find out how. Dr. Victoria Fielding is a lecturer specializing in media studies at the University of Adelaide, and she's been having a close look at the way the Murdoch media in Australia has been communicating with its readership about climate change. In October last year, Murdoch media outlets launched a new climate change campaign advocating a path toward net zero emissions by 2050. The launch included a 16-page wraparound supplement in all of its tabloids, which supported the need for climate action. While some key environmental groups cautiously welcomed the move, Victoria Fielding was sceptical. So I began by asking her why. For a very long time, the Murdoch media have advocated against climate action. They have been the home people who deny that climate change is happening. When the bushfires happened, there was a lot of public pushback against the Murdoch media for the part that they had played in inaction over many years. So I think it was a public relations decision to try to reduce the damage of people unsubscribing to reduce the damage to their reputation. So it was more a marketing strategy. That's right. And you were sceptical about this Murdoch campaign initiative. Why were you sceptical? Were there any other reasons? So this long history of editorial hostility and also a huge amount of evidence that that their reporting style was very much either denying the climate issue itself or denying the need for action, or really importantly, campaigning against politicians who wanted action campaigning against parties like the Greens, who have advocated for a long time for climate action, advocating against the Labor government carbon tax when there was a carbon tax, hugely successful anti-Labor campaign against um, both Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard as Prime Minister. To suddenly have them say, we're not going to do that anymore, was interesting in itself because it was an admission that they had been doing it. And then to also say, we're going to completely change direction. We're going to do a 180-degree turn And we're going to accept that climate change needs to be dealt with and we're going to advocate for net zero by 2050. As soon as I saw that, I thought, well, that's really unlikely to happen. Yes. And you followed it up with some research. Tell me about the research briefly. What did you actually do? I was interested to see if this 
campaign that they said that they were going to run would actually extend to making the link between extreme weather events and climate change. I did a search of their coverage of the flood and any mentions of climate change in relation to floods. I wanted to see whether journalists and commentators at the Murdoch papers were reporting the flood's link to climate change differently from other outlets. I did a really basic comparison across the time period during flood coverage. The number of times climate change was linked to the floods was really quite obviously different when it came to News Corp. They were mentioning climate change, but there was less coverage overall of the link. There were deniers, particularly in the commentary pages, and some of them criticising the ABC for doing too much of a link between climate change and the flood. What outlets are we talking about? The Australian, the Herald Sun and the Daily Telegraph are definitely the three worst offenders. So I was looking at their online coverage, but it pretty much mirrors what's in their newspapers. The news.com.au was their better one. And the Courier Mail was a bit split. So the Courier Mail is Queensland's paper, and that was really where the floods were occurring. Slightly better, but not great. I was comparing them to the Guardian, the ABC and the Fairfax newspapers. So all the major newspapers, as well as the conversation. The ABC and The Guardian had the most coverage of the flood linked to climate change. And it's really that ability for a journalist to contextualise a new story is where you start to make these linkages. So everyone was doing excellent coverage of the flood, what happened, what impact it had, and the cleanup and the victims. But being able to tell a wider story of why this is happening is something that they definitely can choose to do or choose not to do. I can demonstrate with this research, the Murdoch media might say that they advocate for net zero by 2050, and they might have had a couple of spreads where they demonstrated an interest in the issue, but it's not following through when it comes to their actual decisions when they're reporting general news. And I will add as well that if they really wanted to advocate for net zero by 2050, their rabid promotion of the Liberal Party and the National Party during the election that we've just had really undermines that argument because if you wanted a good climate policy, you would have been advocating for some mix of a, a Labor-Green, well, independent outcome, which is what the country got. I'm speaking with Dr Victoria Fielding about the Murdoch media's campaign, and I quote, to inform Australians about the key environmental and climate issues of our time and in support of net zero emissions by 2050. Launched in October last year, Victoria says the timing was significant. When Scott Morrison said that the Liberal Party was going to have a policy on climate change, it was very similar timing to the Murdoch media saying that they would advocate for that. So yes, it was their own public relations, but I also think it was making a path for Scott Morrison to look like he cares about climate change as well, even though at the end of the day, we know that, you know, middle of the campaign, Canavan said, actually, no, we're not really that interested in the net net zero by 2050. So, oops, that cat got out of the bag. But it felt like they were very much in concert. And I argue with a lot of my research that this form of conservative advocacy is actually bolstering the voices of right-wing politicians in order to help them argue their, their perspectives. In your paper, you talk about three styles of advocacy journalism, and each requires a different type of communication with its readers, and each has very different implications for the working of democracy. So could you outline just briefly each of those styles and explain where your recent research findings um, fit the Murdoch media? 
I have looked at advocacy um, within a model of three different styles. One is radical, one is a collaborator style, and one is conservative. So I define radical advocacy the way that it really is being defined in a lot of um, academic research, which is trying to reduce inequalities between people who are trying to access the mainstream news media, particularly marginalised voices who don't often get heard, making sure they have a platform to have their views heard to make the mainstream media much more diverse. The Guardian has an example of that. They have a Keep It In The Ground campaign that they've been running over various years, which is transparently advocating to try to keep fossil fuels in the ground in order to reduce the harmful effects of climate change. It was really interesting reading their justification of this campaign. Alan Rusberger, who was their editor, said it's very uncomfortable to take a position in journalism. We've been trained to be objective and we've been trained to not just um, look at an issue from one side. But we all felt in the newsroom compelled to actually look at this issue to try to educate the audience and in doing so have actually been transparent about it. So that's radical advocacy. I try to take away the left-wing, right-wing perspective and look at it more as what voices was marginalised. Well, it was the scientists who were being marginalised by the big oil and the big gas who were telling them that what they were finding was not true. Then you have collaborative advocacy, which is a very sort of complex style because of the way that it sometimes exists in countries which are not as democratic as Australia, but it's really where the state collaborates with the media. So we do have journalism that is collaborative um, when it comes to things like national security. The media will not report on the location of troops. Um, we have collaboration, say, when the media quite purposely promote regulations such as health regulations during the COVID pandemic. Then the other style of advocacy, which actually takes the view of the powerful voice and amplifies it. And so it's advocating on behalf of the more powerful party in a contest. So when it comes to the Murdoch media, that means taking the side of the big coal companies, the big oil companies in their fight against climate change. That is a form of conservative advocacy. It is a political perspective of the world that takes the view of the more structurally powerful party, whether it be against trans kids or against women's rights. Looking back at the coverage of the election, I mean, I'm sure you would have been very attuned to what was going on. How did you feel about the coverage, the journalistic coverage of the election? It was woeful, absolutely woeful. They obsessed with personality. They made it a battle between two campaigners. Uh, they made it a battle between who could perform like a seal at their press conferences. It was very one-sided. It felt like every day Albanese was um, coming out. They were almost shoving him to see if he'd fall over. They missed huge stories during the election. They missed the anger in WA about Scott Morrison's lack of support during the COVID pandemic. They missed the absolute whitewash the Liberals were going to get in Victoria for similar reasons. They hardly ever talked about climate change, which was one of the major reasons that people wanted a change of government. They barely talked about policies at all, such as aged care, childcare, things that have real impacts on people's lives. It was so shallow that I actually thought it was quite useless to the public. And I guess there's a lot more sort of uh, thinking to be done about why has this actually fallen so flat for them? I think they're in a race to the bottom as well in terms of losing that legitimacy. Once you've lost people's um, trust in journalism, they just think you're a joke and they just stop reading you altogether. So that's something I think that's a reckoning for media to um, come to terms with that if, they, if people aren't switching on to media, it's really, really harmful to democracy. 
because where do we get our useful information about how we want to vote from if we can't trust the media to give it to us? Victoria Fielding, lecturer in media studies at the University of Adelaide. And we'll put a link to her paper on the Communication Mixdown website. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep community strong. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03-9419-8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, keep Keep community community strong. Online and in cinema, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival will be running online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July. Canvassing the world's best docos from South by Southwest, Tribeca and Hot Docs, as well as the best Australian content. Check out the lineup and book today at mdff.org.au or cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. You are on 3CR and you can be a supporter too in so many ways. But during Radiothon, coming up in June, we're hoping you'll be able to contribute to the station's fundraising. We know times are tough, so we really appreciate your donations, no matter what size. I'm Judith Peppard. You're with Communication Mixed Down, a show about all things communication. And now we're going to move from politics to earth science, from Murdoch to mushrooms. But how do mushrooms fit in a program about communication? We're about to find out. Katie Field is a professor in plant soiled processes at the University of Sheffield in the UK. And she's been looking at some of the research that, intriguingly, suggests that mushrooms actually have the ability to communicate with one another. The research she's referring to was conducted by computer scientist Andrew Adamatsky, director of the Unconventional Computing Laboratory of the University of the West of England. I began by asking Katie to explain, in layperson's terms, what Professor Adamatsky actually did to find out that mushrooms have an electrical language all their own and far more complicated than anyone previously thought. He's plugged tiny electrodes into fungus, basically. So he's plugged it into where they're growing from. And he's measured the electrical signals that have been transmitted across these filaments. And what he's found is spikes in those electrical signals, which look a lot like the spikes that you see in nerve cells. The patterning of those spikes is very similar to the ones that happen when animals are communicating. So when people are talking or when other types of animals are are sort of communicating with others of the same species. And so from that, he's kind of then applied this mathematical algorithm to it. And what he's found is that it looks really similar. The results are really similar to actual language with these spiking patterns being similar to words 
and forming even like what look like sentences. I think it's really important to point out though is that we don't understand what this language is or whether it really is actually a language or is it just sort of spikes in activity being transmitted across an organism. So again we have to remember fungi are not like animals, they're not like plants, they're their own kingdom of organisms and they actually exist as this series of filaments or tubes that grow either through the soil or decaying wood or whatever it is that they happen to be feeding on. And these tubes are all interconnected and they just kind of pass signals and nutrients across this sort of fungal mycelial network. It's not 100% clear whether these signals that are being detected actually are communication or are they just kind of a pattern of it foraging? So it's, it's very mysterious, but also really, really interesting. Yeah, and also very science fiction almost. And I guess the next set of experiments to do is test whether the signals change, whether you have different patterning if you expose the fungus to a stress or if you give it some food, does it then start communicating where that food is to the rest of the fungal mycelia or is it just this background pulsating sort of electrical noise? Yes, another discovery you've noted from this research is that different species of mushrooms use different languages. Yeah, so the researcher in question, he measured these electrical spikes in different species of mushrooms. And what he found is that those different species transmitted these electrical spikes in different frequencies and amplitudes. Just There were different patterns according to what species was. And so he kind of interpreted that as like a species specific language and that each species was communicating in its own special way. Again, I'm, I'm a little bit sceptical of it actually being a language and it might actually just be reflective of the way that fungus is growing or how it's transmitting information amongst its own sort of mycelial network, which I guess you can look at as a type of language. It all depends on what you define as what is communication, what is language. And we have to remember that like, they're almost like aliens to us, like they're, they're a totally different kingdom. They're as different to us as like plants are to fish, right? They're completely different. Yeah, for sure. But but it does seem that they are communicating from this research. They're definitely transmitting information, which is fascinating, right? No one's ever seen that before or certainly not measured it in that way. I'm speaking with Professor Katie Field about the possibility that mushrooms are communicating and possibly communicate with words and sentences in what humans describe as a language. But I had some other questions for Katie. Some of the research you've discussed, it talks about underground networks of communication where mushrooms and mushrooms uh, communicate, but also mushrooms and plants. Give me some examples. These are what we call mycorrhizal networks. So mycorrhizas, they're everywhere. And all that word means, it's a relationship between a fungus and a plant root. And nearly all plants around us have these associations in their roots. So when you're looking at a plant, you're actually really looking at a plant and a fungus together. Traditionally, we've always considered mycorrhizal associations to be uh, related to plant nutrient uptake. So the fungus helps the plant get nutrients out of the soil because it's much better at doing that than plant roots. They're much finer so they can get nutrients from smaller pores in the soil. Uh, they can also secrete sort of acids and digestive sort of enzymes and stuff um, that actually weather the minerals in the soil and extract nutrients and pass them to the plant the plant otherwise would be able to get. So in return, the plant gives the fungus carbon that it's, it's fixed from photosynthesis. So things like sugars and fats, it gives it that organic carbon. So they kind of have this 
mutualistic partnership between one another and they are like intimately associated so they grow the fungus grows inside the plant root and that they live together as one but recent research has shown that actually below ground these mycorrhizal fungal networks form between neighboring plants so they actually share a fungal partner so one fungus can be connecting the roots of one plant to another plant. What this research has shown recently is the plants are able to respond to what's happening to a neighbouring plant that's connected by a fungus. With the experiment I'm thinking of, they showed that when you apply a herbivore, so an aphid or another insect, to a plant that has a mycorrhizal fungal network connecting it to a neighbour, the neighbouring plant that doesn't have that aphid herbivore or that the other insects that's causing it damage, that plant starts emitting defensive compounds in response to its neighbour being attacked. So it kind of like the neighbour's sending this signal somehow through the mycorrhizal network, making the neighbouring plant respond and ward off pests. Wow. It sounds like communication. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, right. It's amazing. But I mean, we don't know how it does that. And I think what's exciting about the research with the language is that actually that kind of gives us a clue as to how those messages are being transmitted between neighboring plants, for example, how, how that sort of message might actually look in, in reality. So it could be that it's an electrical impulse that's actually informing neighboring plants so maybe plants are able to interpret this fungal language to then respond to external stresses. So I think you've already begun to address this question but how would you counter the argument that the interpretation of these experiments uh, representing insights into fungal communication and uh, dare I say consciousness uh, to what extent are they merely forms of anthropomorphism mm. attributing human characteristics to non-human matter? Yeah, I think it's really, really tempting to look at phenomena like this and see reflected in it things that we recognise, so our own language and the way that we form words and sentences. We have to remember that these organisms have evolved along a completely different trajectory to humans. What we recognise as language and consciousness could be very different in other organisms. Fungi don't have nervous systems, they don't have like a brain, but that doesn't mean there isn't some form of consciousness even, and it could be just that we don't recognise that. And I think, although we're right to kind of be sceptical about literally translating what we're seeing as being a, a language, I think, I think we should be sceptical of that and we should sort of be critical and think about it in a very careful way. I think also we should also be open to the idea that, you know, consciousness, it can be different to our own consciousness. And what we see isn't necessarily or what we think of as consciousness might not be the same across different kingdoms of life. Yes. And of course, mushrooms are, are so old. Do they precede human life on Earth? Even old, older than plant life, right? They've been around for half a billion years at least. Fungi were probably present on Earth's terrestrial surfaces way before plants were. So there was some fossil evidence of potential fungal structures that were dated to be around a billion years old. But I think we can definitely say they were around at least half a billion years ago, which is way before humans, animals, or plant life was on Earth's land masses. As a lot of research suggests that actually fungi were responsible for helping bring plants onto the land out of the water. So they've played this huge important part in the evolution of ecosystems. 
You conclude your paper by saying these results could represent the first insights into fungal intelligence and even consciousness, as as you have said already, and that that is a very big could. But depending on the definitions involved, the possibility remains, though it would seem to exist on timescales, frequencies, and magnitudes not easily perceived by humans. So, Katie Field, do you think fungi are about to take over the world? I think fungi already have taken over the world. I think they took over the world half a billion years ago. When we we look at a mushroom, we think we're looking at fungi, but we're not. The mushroom is just the tip of the iceberg. They They exist on every continent. They exist in the water. They're born in the air. And they kind of, they take every possible form you can imagine from invisible, tiny single cells right through to huge mushroom reproductive structures. And the largest organism on earth is a fungus, right? It's a honey fungus, it's, it's, it's kilometers long. I think we live in a fungal world. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Professor Katie Field from the University of Sheffield in the UK. And she stayed up late last Tuesday to chat with us for this episode of Communication Mixdown. So a big thank you to Katie. And we'll put a link to her paper on the Communication Mixdown website. And thank you also to Dr. Victoria Fielding from the University of Adelaide for sharing her research on how the Murdoch media has been dealing with climate change. And to John Langer for editorial support for tonight's show. Now on Communication Mixdown, we usually go out with music, which reflects our conversations during the show. But this evening, we're doing something a little bit different. Myco Lyco is an outfit that creates meditation music. They use biodata sonification and a Eurotrack synthesizer to listen in as two blocks of blue oyster mushrooms, well, communicated. So we'll hear a small segment of the blue oyster mushrooms and follow that with Mushroom Vibes, a chill-out piece by Lo-Fi Hip-Hop Mix, to take you home, or if you're already home, to relax. Here's the blue oyster mushrooms. See which piece you like best.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.